Uh, we've been in a sermon series on the book of James called Shoe Leather Wisdom. And if you've got your Bibles or your phone or whatever you use, roll that out and open it up or turn it on or whatever you have to do for that. And uh, we're going into uh, chapter 4. And really, if you take all of chapter 4 and kind of look at um, what James is saying, it's don't do this. Right? This is not the Christian life. This is not the way it was supposed to be played out. And so he's talking uh, from that side, of the, that side of the equation. And uh, so we're going to take a look, but let's pray before we do, all right? Father, when uh, we come to James and we, we come to these things, there's wisdom there. It's, it really is a book that has momentum and immediacy to it. And in this one, it's going to talk about our pursuit of passion instead of our pursuit of you. And Lord, we all know that battle. And it's going to be probably a sermon that's going to ricochet around the room and uh, talk to different people at different places. And so we just invite you into the room this morning. Uh, You're already here. This is your church. We're your family. But you've been having conversations with us for a long time. And, And some parts of that we probably have listened. And some parts of that we probably haven't. And this morning is going to become one of those watershed marks where we come to communion together and our hearts need to be right. So process with us this morning. Help us process with you so that our hearts are right as we come to communion. And we give that to you with great hope. And I ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, let's look. We're going to go verses um, 1 through 5 this morning. And we're starting with uh, verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he has this very flattering phrase. You adulterous people, right? Seeker friendly right there. Um, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is with no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, let me take you to next week and tell you that next week is good news because next week says, but he gives a greater grace. All right? But this week, James is not talking about grace. He's talking about crisis he's talking about uh being under pressure and we have two modes that we operate in one is what i call the social mode for example um the grad parties are this weekend and like after church today we'll be going to kirk and sherry's because rebecca's graduating we'll hang out and right it's just i like you you like me we're having good food okay this is great there's not a lot of pressure to that that's very different than when we are under pressure When the margin is gone, the limits are gone, and suddenly we start reacting because we are amped up, would be a a polite way to say it. And when that happens, the cracks and the flaws in our personalities and our characters start to show pretty quick. doesn't take much, right? Just like the cracks on the Big Island of Hawaii opened up with the eruption of Mount Kilauea and the lava, lava started spewing out have you seen any of those pictures like it, can you imagine standing on your road and watching that you know 200 feet away going whoa um 
there's now enough lava that's poured out that it filled the entire base. So the shoreline now is a mile out from where it used to be. That's, that's the volume. Well, sometimes when we erupt, we create that kind of a debris field as well in our relationships. And um, our fleshly nature pops out and spews out flames and toxic gas. You know, volcanoes aren't the only thing that burns stuff and people up, right? We can tend to burn each other up. And the readers that James was writing to were under such pressure. Remember, this is a persecuted group. It had not gone well. They had to flee out of Jerusalem pretty much for their life. They probably could grab a bundle or a pack or throw stuff in a blanket and run out everything else they left, much like the people in Hawaii. And so they're under stress. And so... James is writing to them uh, because the pressure and the cracks were starting to show and James is going to address this directly, right? And so in chapter 3, he describes the issue of worldliness with the tongue. Remember he said the tongue is a deadly fire and we talked about the sins of the tongue. Well, in chapter 4 here, he's going to describe, he's now going to go deeper and look at worldliness of the heart. Because we all know that the tongue merely reflects what's going on in the heart. Right? We may not like what it says, and we may even at sometimes be able to shut it down a little bit, you know, actually use some wisdom and not say what we were thinking. But most of us know that getting the battle on the inside is not an easy task, yielding that over to the Holy Spirit. So let's look at it this morning and go through it together. He starts with a question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, I'm going to heavily borrow from, I just want you to know straight up, this is not Steve, he's not a genius, all right? I'm going to heavily borrow from the Expositor's Bible Commentary because they just did such an excellent job of laying this passage and section of Scripture out. And so, just know that. But these two worlds, quarrels and fights, are interesting in their usage, and this is what they point out. So quarrels, which is makai, and then fights, next word is polmai. All right, so Expositor's Bible Commentary says that these words are normally used uh, for national warfare. Later, it, they became also expressions of any kind of open antagonism. In other words, if there was a flare-up and, and contention and fighting, that, that's what they began to describe. So, uh, antagonism and hostility, what he's saying here, James is saying, is that the kind of antagonism and hostility that usually takes place in the world in the context of war, now are actually taking place in the church. And the question here is, well, who's actually at fault? Uh, We don't actually have their names, but we do know that James lays it squarely at their feet. These are the New Testament Christians that we always think were so much better and more spiritual than us. Kind of nice to know they struggled the way we did, right? And and what was going on? What, What was chewing at them? What was the inner um, grind that was going on. And I want to suggest to you, it was a spirit of contention, right? They were in contention with each other. They were finding fault with each other. They were arguing. They were dark in their hearts and abusive with their tongues. Can Christians get like that? Oh, yes, we can, right? And James is asking the question, what's the source of all this contention that you see and that you're experiencing? And he answers it um, with his own rhetorical question. And it says this, is it not this? Here's the answer. 
that your passions are at war within you. Okay? Your passions are at war within you. You ever had a battle going on in your heart over different passions that are trying to grip you? Right? Maybe one towards God's side and one towards the devil's side and, and you wrestling with should I, shouldn't I, that kind of thing. That's James aims directly at the inner issue of the heart and the turmoil that was going on within them and by extrapolation then we can say us as well. Right? Um, it could be called the inward flare-up of the heart. Remember I asked last week, how much does it take to flare you? Right? Flame on. Right? Usually not too much. Right? Usually you'll be going along, going along, something bump you and just whang, right? It just jumps out. Uh, ESV uses the word passions here. NIV says desires. So you can look at those two words and it kind of helps. But the word for passions here uh, is interesting. It's the Greek word hednon, which uh, equates to pleasures. All right? And so uh, the question would be, do you recognize that word hednon? Yeah. We get our English word what? Hedonism from it, right? And hedonism uh, is an English word, but it's a philosophy that views pleasure. And in here, let's make that my pleasure or my perceived best outcome, right? As the chief goal of life. In other words, I want to get those things that will make me feel good, that will make me feel well, now there are some that are from God that are great, and then there's some that are not from God that are not so great. And sometimes that line gets a little blurry. Quoting the expositor's Bible commentary here directly, uh, it says James pictures these pleasures as residing within his readers. They're carrying on a bitter campaign to gain satisfaction. And I like that word, right? I just thought that's just a great word. The battle for satisfaction. My satisfaction, to be precise. Anybody recognize that battle? Right? It happens in our marriages. Although this is not a a message on marriage, uh, it fits the context really well. How many battles in marriage are about me gaining satisfaction over my spouse, my husband or my wife? Right? We're in a war over each other. And we're duking it out over whose way gets chosen and I want to gain satisfaction by winning. It goes on in our parenting, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and sadly even in our churches. James is saying, don't do this. This is not Christian. James is really using strong words here. He says we are to die to our passions and desires. To quote uh, our local resident emerging theologian, Nathan Isler, he was up here on the stage last week. Remember the verse he quoted? right? Galatians 2.20? It says this. He quoted he, uh, that this had become his life verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are still, as Christians today, to be a crucified people. We are to die to ourselves and come alive to His kingdom. We are to be a people who live by faith. We are 
to be a people that are for Jesus. We are to be a people that are coached by the Holy Spirit. And what are we coached in by the Holy Spirit? What to come alive to, but also what we must die to. And if we don't die to, then we don't come alive to. You ever watch that inside yourself? If we don't die to, then we don't come alive to. And Satan always wants to keep the worldly push going in us so that we don't come alive, alive to. We are to, um, to die to our passions. Now, just where we're at, our culture, where we're at right now, America, 2018, our culture is in a flat-out race to see who can experience and gain the most pleasure and satisfaction. Right? We are on a 24-7, 365, never shut it down. I need to pursue what will make me happy. And the amazing ride of suicide over the last few years uh, has certainly many tangents to it, and certainly it's not a simple issue, so I don't want to imply that in any uh, way or form. But one of the core triggers behind it is this. If life doesn't give me the satisfaction I want, then I want out of here. I don't want hard. I don't want suffering. I certainly don't want crucifixion and have to die to stuff. I want to have fun. I want to be happy and I will pursue whatever that is. Uh, This week, Anthony Bordoyan just uh, took his own life and many of us ran the world pursuing pleasure. Obviously, that's not the answer, right? It's written, of course, It's an unalienable right because it's written where? In our Constitution. That we all have the the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How much different would our country be if it had been worded life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness? Of course, who wrote the Constitution? Thomas Jefferson. And if you know enough about Thomas Jefferson's life, you know he pursued Happiness on that level as well, right? Quoting another theologian who has more than a little bit to say on this, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake will find it. The taking up of my cross is leaning into the things that are hard. Uh, they didn't sand Jesus' cross before they put it on his shoulders. Right? To surrender to Jesus' authority and kingdom, I must deny myself. It's an authority issue. Who do I come under? And here's precisely why church attendance is down across our country. Very few see it, see that as the way to life anymore. Why would I do that when I can have all this that tells me uh, I deserve it? Right? If you watch the TV commercials, you deserve. That, that's a big theme. Uh, nobody wants to do that. Lose my life? Give up my options? You've got to be kidding me. I, I don't think so. And it's not just the world. James is writing to Christians who should know better. Right? James expands this explanation and he takes it a little farther. He says, you desire and you do not have, and so you murder. He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, there's that word, passions. Okay? You desire and have not, so you murder. We know from Jesus' words that uh, hating one's brother in our hearts is the same as murder. Have you ever murdered someone in your heart? With your thoughts? You know, life's becoming cheap in our culture, right? And, and we now have gone from thought to action. And you can read all the time uh, different murders that take place locally, statewide, nationally. Uh, there were 255 murders in Chicago alone in the last six months. There are places the police don't even go into. They just put barricades around it and then they come in after and pick up the bodies. James says, you desire and have not, so you murder. They're in your way. They're a pain in the rear end. They're a roadblock and you have to get them out of the way to get to where you want to go or to get what you think you've got to have. You know, this is incredibly reminiscent of the wilderness wanderings, right? If you've read the wilderness wanderings in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you, you pick up this same, same spirit. And there in the desert, it says that they gave into their cravings. Psalm 106, looking back on the event, says that uh, they, the psalmist called it wanton cravings. Right? And I, we don't use the word wanton anymore, but I put it up here. Wanton means reckless okay, or heartless without reason or excuse. If you think of many of the crimes that take place in our culture, isn't that what it is? It's just wanton recklessness, wanton heartlessness. It's just uh, without reason or excuse. And this is the kind of craving and passion. So what happens is, in the beginning, we start to control our passions because we think it'll help us. But in the end... uh, they, what you start out controlling ends up controlling you. And so what do we call that in our country? Addiction, right? And we have an amazing amount of addictions simply because now we're no longer in control of our passions. Our passions are now in control of us. And James pinpoints the problem. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. What's the issue here? Lack of prayer. Now, there's something to that because why would I want to pray if I know God's going to say no? Right? You ever been there? Have you ever tried to fancy a prayer around? Like, I know you're going to say, you ever, like your kids, I know you're going to say no, but, but just hear me out. Have you ever done that to God? Right? Or then you just quit praying. Well, I'll just ignore him and then it won't matter. I can get what I want. Or even worse, we pray, we Pray with crooked motives. James says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions or cravings. So the person who's praying this way is not interested in cooperating or fulfilling the kingdom of God. They're interested in using the resources and power of the king to fulfill their lusts, their passions, or their desires. And usually, what kind of form does that take? Grumbling and complaining. You ever grumbled against God? 
You haven't given me what I've asked for when I've asked for it in the way I've asked for it. Right? None of us would, but other churches have that problem. You know, if you look at Scripture, the wilderness wanderings, the prodigal son, the rich young ruler, and the first thief on the cross are all examples of this. Remember the first thief? Aren't you the Messiah? Get us off of this. Right? Get us out of here. And James is saying, he's, he's calling us out. He's saying this is a cruel twist of, uh, twist of what God really intended. And he's saying, pull out, pull away, stop doing that. These, these, there are some things that we have to die to. And there are some things that we better die to. Because if we don't, then this will never come alive. That's what he's arguing for. Paul says this in Philippians. He says it this way, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears. Paul's talking about people he cared about. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He said their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What's Paul saying here? Their appetites run them. Okay? Their appetites rule them. Appetites for food, appetites for power, appetites for prestige, appetites for honor, appetites for, name it, right? Saying they're God, right? Your belly, you eat food, it's your appetite. He's using that as a picture of the other kind of appetites that tend to dominate. And he says if we operate that way and we glory in things that are shameful, he says then we are going to end in destruction. And he's warning the same way. I'm going to ask the guys to come forward to distribute communion at this point. So if you would come up and begin to do that, thank you very much. Let's go on to the next point. James says in James 4.4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Those are really sobering words. The desire to fulfill my passions or my desires can derail my love and passion for Jesus. If I come alive to this, I tend to not come alive to this. Thank you, Kevin. If I come alive to the world, it tends to deaden and drown out my love and reaching out to Jesus. And here, James uses the direct correlation of friendship with the world, which is the seed of of my carnal search for pleasure. And what he says is, if I allow my carnal pleasure to run this, then what happens is I start to become spiritually faithless or spiritually unfaithful because I'm now aiming at everything down here and I'm not aiming at anything up here. And so I'm looking for this to satisfy me. I'm looking for this to fulfill me. I'm looking for this to give me meaning in life. And the Bible says it's a hollow pit. The only thing that will fall into it is you. The real life is, comes from Him. And you can't love the world and love God at the same time. Scripture uh, says that all over the place. 
The expositor's Bible commentary points out the, the shocking term he uses to emphasize this uh, by calling it out. What does he say? You adulterous people. Right? That's kind of shocking. He's saying that to Christians. Right? Now, in this, um, it's significant that the noun used here is feminine, meaning he's calling them adulteresses. Right? Male and female together, saying you adulteresses. And an adulteress is one who's unfaithful to her husband. As we come to communion, this makes perfect sense. Why? Because the church is called the bride of Christ. Right? A bride is supposed to love her husband. And James is using the feminine picture here to say, you adulteresses, you're loving another husband. It's the world. You're not loving the king. I bet you that got their attention. The Expositor's Bible Commentary also points out that if you want to get a grasp of the shocking nature of the charge, just go to the Old Testament and read the book of Hosea and that story. And it kind of gives the picture of a woman who would not stay tethered to the love of her husband. And if you've read that book, you know exactly what I'm talking about because God had uh, Hosea go out and marry a prostitute named Gomer as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness uh, to him. James knew the connection and he used it deliberately. It was meant to shock and it was meant to jar. And it's intended to do the same for us. There's just times when God says, it's a wake-up call. Where are you? You in love with this or you in love with this? Well, how would I know? Right? As I thought about this, I thought, well, where's the shoe leather part to this? Okay, that's all great head stuff, Mish, but where's the shoe leather stuff this? And here's the shoe leather. I sat down. There's three indicators that help me measure what I really love. Right? Where my heart affections really are. There's probably more, but here's three of the main ones. First one is, where do I invest my time? Think about how you invest my time. And this is where the Holy Spirit can speak to all of us differently because we're not all wired the same. We don't have the same personalities and we don't use our time the same. Um, Where do I invest my time? Is it in my hobbies? Um, Is it in the pursuit of my pleasures? Is it in the pursuit of my love for God? Question on that in terms of time. When was the last time you had a quiet time? You and the Lord actually in the Word together because you like Him. Not because you have to. You like them. Right? We spend time with people we like. This one can be uh, clarified even further by asking the question, when I'm alone in my thoughts, where do they naturally go? And that would be the fantasy part. Right? When I'm alone and nobody's around and my thoughts can go anywhere they want, where do they go? Do they go to things of the world or do they go to the things of the king? Second one. Where does my money go? It's often been said, show me your checkbook and I will show you your priorities. And the deep theological question that must be asked this morning is, what's a checkbook? <laughs> Isn't that funny? Oh, that's all. Che- I wrote that. Away. Half the audience doesn't even know what a checkbook is, right? Okay, so uh, all humor aside though, my money, is it spent on my passions and appetites or does it go to the kingdom of God? Now, the cynic here will instantly step up and go, see, see, all the church really cares about is your money. 
if God is so big and God's so supernatural, why does He always have a problem with money? Okay? And my answer to you this morning is God doesn't have a problem with money. It's His people who have a problem with money. All right? God's totally fine with money. He knows how to use it. He's the one who created it. All right? And I've taught this at Northview and many times, and I'm going to repeat it again till we choke on it. All right? But it's this. If everyone in their love for Jesus gave what Jesus asked them to give, we would have more than enough. If everyone gave what Jesus asked them to give, we'd have more than enough. That doesn't mean we'd all give the same amounts. It doesn't mean anything like that. What it means is that we would have equal sacrifice, different gifts. Right? And the question is, are we obedient with our money? Do we give gratefully? Do we give joyfully? And do we give with faith? Believing that God will use... You know, this whole enterprise here, as you sit, exists off of faith this morning. It's a miracle people show up every Sunday. Have you thought about that? With all the options we have in a culture, it's absolutely crazy that people actually show up. You are awesome. So that's good. So where does the current of your giving go? Does it go to the world or does it go to the kingdom of God? Or a third option, does it go to yourself? Are you just selfish and it goes to you? The third way to measure it that I really love, and it's with this question. What elicits my enthusiasm? In other words, what do I get excited about? Um, what, what pumps me up or what amps me? I mean, is it the Mariners right now with their winning streak, sweeping the Astros 40-24 record, first place in the AOS? Not that I'm tracking any of it, but, I mean, does that get you excited? Right? Or is it the Seahawks in the upcoming training camp, right? And the season coming up? Or is it shopping? Or is it vacation, right? You get really hyped on vacation. Or is it a new truck or a car or a home? Or is it cash in your wallet? Freedom, right? Uh, or is it Fortnite, right? You're all going, Fortnite? Fortnite. Well, if the junior high in here, they'd know what that is, right? Or is it Jesus and his kingdom, right? If you checked all three boxes for the world... Be careful. James says, if you love the world more than you love God, you become an enemy of God. That's pretty straight up. Even if you're in the church. Remember, James is writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-believers. God wants us to love Him like He loves us. How do I know that that's true? He says this, or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that is made to dwell in us. As we come to communion, we totally understand the picture of God sending His love to us in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would soon after the Last Supper die on the cross for our sins. And that's the whole reason that we have gathered here this morning is because He died and resurrected from the dead and we claim that only in Him is eternal life to be found. Outside of all these options we've been talking about this morning. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. That's still the best news that this world has ever heard. This isn't it. Jesus flat out deserves our utmost love and respect. Period. Would it not make just as much sense to us that when God saved us, He gave us the precious deposit of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
And that deposit is very precious to him. And that just as God jealously longs for the relationship with his son, that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live in us. He's waiting to collect it all back to himself. Just as he greatly longed to be reunited with his son, so he greatly longs to be reunited with the Holy Spirit, which is now deposited in us as a precious treasure. How simple is this? It's this simple. Jesus at the Last Supper saying, don't love the world, love me. The disciples necessarily get that at that point? No, but they did get it later on, right? And the Holy Spirit coaching the same idea. Don't love the world, love God. And so we come to communion this morning with the question, who do you love? Who do you love? And not just in words. Who gets your time? Who gets your money? Who gets your affection or your excitement? Is it Jesus? Is it the world? And Jesus understood all that, right? At the Last Supper, He took the bread and broke it and He said, this is my body, which is going to be sacrificed for you. He said, I get it. I'll do for what you can't do for yourself. He says, eat this in memory of me. And then he took the cup. He said, how much do I love you? I'm willing to die for you, and in our case, before you even showed up. That's pretty impressive if you think about it. Would you die for you? He has a fantastic love for us. We're going to celebrate that love today at the family meal, but it, it pays attention to stop and think appreciation-wise what he's done. Jesus said, drink this in memory of me. We're going to worship in just a minute here, but would you join me in prayer? Father, I don't know on what level you spoke, but I'm pretty confident you spoke. And I'm pretty confident you didn't have the same discussion with each person. I'm pretty confident you know us, you know this passage, you knew the timing, you knew who would be here, and you knew the circumstances that they're facing, you knew um, where the battles have been, you know where their love is. And you know those who are doing well, and you're applauding them right now, you know those who are kind of stuck in the middle and you're trying to woo them towards you, you know those who have been far away and they have to make a beeline to you. And so in that this morning, we'd ask the favor of your Holy Spirit, just clarifying that in grace. We're going to talk about grace next week. In grace, to be more in love with you than with the world. We give that to you as a treasure. We give that to you as safekeeping. And we give that to you as precious. And we pray this in your name. Amen.